Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Before Daph comes to Speak to us, let me pray. Father, we ask again that you would help us now. We humbly come before your word. Speak to us. Be with Daff. Help him. In your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, for anyone who can't cope with the sermon, there'll be a short tour of local sightseeing interests leaving from the foyer in 30 seconds' time. I wonder what uh, you thought as Joe was interviewed just a moment ago, and she said God was good standing here being treated for breast cancer. Did you believe her? Or what you thought when John Tilson said about the last year of his life, I wouldn't have wished that year upon my worst enemy but I would not have had it any other way. Because what God taught him, the way he drew him closer to Christ. Is that true? Because we live in a world that says pain is always a bad thing. Our news has been full of it this week, hasn't it, with Alfie Evans. It's why so many children are actually aborted before birth. Why have a child who's going to suffer in life if there's something wrong with them end its life before it starts. It's why there's such pressure for euthanasia in our country, because pain is always a bad thing. And therefore, if you're in pain, what you need is a lot of drugs to take that away. Pain is never good. 
Is that right? I think now people are probably uh, as afraid of pain as they are of death. In some ways, more afraid because we'd rather end our life, if this is all there is, than suffer in it. Now, in this sermon, Hebrews, which we've seen as a sermon to first century Jewish Christians, we've seen they want the pain to end. And the pain specifically for them is the struggle of suffering as Christians. They're having a rough time simply because they follow Jesus. It means they don't fit into the culture around them. And so what they want to do is not have difficulty from the world in terms of opposition. No, they want to end it. Walk away from Christ. And the writer of the Hebrews has been saying, no, you've got to persevere in faith. Because actually, even in the midst of pain, you've got an incredible privilege today. You know God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can draw near to the one who is the source of all love, day by day, moment by moment. And you have a a wonderful hope for tomorrow. Your future is certain. You're going to enjoy rest, a perfect new creation with God forever, only knowing his love and the love of other people in a world where all the problems and pain of this life, well, they're no more. And last week in Hebrews 11, what we did is we we charged through some of the greats of the Old Testament who trusted in God's promises, even though they experienced pain in life. They were running, if you like, the marathon of faith. And we saw that they kept going because there were wonderful promises for the future, and they put their hope in them. And that's what the writer is urging all Christians to do as he preaches Hebrews. So in chapter 6 and verse 12, he said this, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Because they're dangerous. They look at their present circumstances and they think, well, what's the point of being a Christian? Is it it really worth it? I'm I'm getting a hard time for my friends and family because I'm getting a bit religious. We saw in chapter 10, they were even facing persecution, being put in prison, having their property confiscated. And that made them think, fitting in, it's far more favorable than, than suffering. And actually, pleasure in the moment's much better than a promise for the future. And frankly, I think I can, I can understand that, can't you? Can't you sympathize with that as an attitude? Until you remember the alternatives. Do you remember the alternatives that came at the end of chapter 10? Here's chapter 10 and verse 39. The writer says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Those are the two options. If if you're not yet a Christian, you need to understand there are two options in life. To to shrink back into the the, the shell of self-interest and comfort, and in the end face God's right judgment described here as, as destruction, or, or to press on in faith and enjoy his beautiful salvation, the certain love of God and forgiveness through his Son, the Lord Jesus, now and through death forever. And what the writer is doing in chapter 12 is he's saying, look, press on through the pain, trust in Christ. And this is how you do it. Here's the first thing he says. He says, run the race. Have a look at chapter 12 and verse 1 down there. Open it up again if you, if you haven't got it. I've got nothing worthwhile to say that doesn't come out of the book in your hands or the app on your phone with the word Bible attached. Here's chapter 12 and verse 1. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these are the, the witnesses, the people we saw last week, the Old Testament heroes of faith in chapter 11. I don't know if you, uh, you saw the, the London Marathon on the telly last week or, or caught up with it later. They say when you're running a marathon, one of the great things is having the, the crowd around you cheering you on. Well, this is a bit like you've got a crowd around you and in it are, are Seb Coe and Steve Avett and Roger Bannister and Kelly Holmes and Steve Cram and Mo Farah. They're all there and they're shouting your name. Come on, you can do it. That, that's who the witnesses are. But, but these are witnesses not just in the stand looking down on us as we, we trudge through the track of life. No, no these are the ones who, who bear race, uh, witness to the way the race should be run. They're the sort of heroes of the inspirational training video. So we're to run like Abraham did, obeying God's word in the present because of a future promise. We're to run like Moses did, not a, obsessed with the wealth of the world, but trusting in the treasures he has in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to run like Gideon did, who put his faith in God even though he was terrified. This cloud of witnesses are around you. And these people, the people who would rather die than deny Christ, they're not just in the stands. Actually, they're around us. They're that crowd at the marathon who are around you at the start and you're all running together. Or at the end, you're in a group and you're running together and they're cheering you on. They're bearing with you each step of the way. Can you imagine that? You know, Abraham, up in heaven at the moment, going, Come on, you can do it, keep going. So what do we do? Verse 1 again, let us throw off everything that hinders. Now, you know in the marathon there are always those jokers at the start. They, they run you know, dressed as a chicken or in a suit of armor. The one thing you're sure about that, that guy or girl is they're not going to win. They're not taking it that seriously, are they? I mean, you're never going to see a bloke in a teddy bear suit going across the finish line first in two hours, five minutes. If you do, it would be fantastic if you did. But it's just not going to happen. Because what the serious runner does is they get stripped down to the, the vest and shorts. They want to carry as little as possible. Because that's the way you win. In fact, this word, everything that hinders, is a word to do with weights like dumbbells. Can you imagine trying to set off running 26 miles carrying a couple of seriously heavy dumbbells? It would be idiocy. And so the writer says, let us throw off everything that hinders. It's not necessarily bad things he's talking about. They're things that stop us running the Christian life that can be good things. could be that promotion at work. But it just means you have to spend longer and longer in the office in the evening so you never get to meet with Christians in a life group or at the hub and you don't hear encouragement. It could be that that desire to to live in the country and enjoy a beautiful house. But but the problem is that in the country you're, you're so far from church now that just getting there through the traffic on a Sunday morning, it's a total nightmare. And well, sometimes you don't bother. It could be a place at a university in a really good uni, but it's in a town where, well, there just isn't a church that teaches the Bible. None of those things are wrong, but they might be things that hinder. I guess we'll know the things now that 
we love doing that aren't wrong, but we know they just stop us being encouraged in the Christian life. But it's not just that the sin that hinders. Do you see that? And the sin that so easily entangles. It's, it's not hard to get caught up in sin, to get caught up in disobeying God. I mean, it, it only took the devil one brief conversation with Adam and Eve to get them hook, line, and sinker, didn't it? Back, back in Genesis 3. And the thing about sin is, it doesn't just hinder you, it trips you up. And the writer says it entangles you. It's a bit like, again, you're standing on the, the start, you've got 26 miles to go, and you say, wait a second, hold it, I'm just going to tie my shoelaces together. Ah, yes. Right. We're off. Bang. Down you go, flatten your face. That's what the sin does. And so, so if you know there's something, there are things in your life, maybe secret, or you think they're secret, but we worship El Roy, the God who sees, or even things that are, that, that are public, sin that is entangling you, or get help. Get help. Did you see, because this is, this is something we do together, did you see that in this verse? Let us throw off the things that hinder, let us. It's something we do for one another. So if you have a, a brother or sister who loves you enough, uh, a fellow Christian to say to you, look, do you know that thing you're doing, Daph? It, it's just wrong. Well, listen to them and, and say, well, please, can you help me with that? They love you enough to say, do you know, it's great that, that your career as an international tiddlywinks player is progressing, but, but do you realize training is taking you away from meeting with God's people? They love you enough to say that. Let, listen to them. Because the writer says, let us throw off everything that, that stops us running the Christian life. Because the Christian life is a marathon. It, it's not like a park run. I mean, park runs are hard enough. But this is 26 miles, not three. Uh, did you see at the end of the verse? We run the race with perseverance, endurance. I think sometimes we think the Christian life is a bit like... Um, it's like Usain Bolt running the 100 meters. We're like Usain Bolt. You know, so what we can do is we just eat a few chicken nuggets. That's all we need. And we turn up with our shoes undone. And then it takes about 10 seconds. The second half of the race, we don't even try. We're like smiling at the camera as we cross the line. Then we do a lap for our honor and glory. And we think that's the Christian life. It should feel like that. But it's not. It's a marathon. No, it's endurance, it's perseverance. In fact, that word perseverance is translated as endurance in the rest of our passage. And you see who has to endure in the very next verse? It's the Lord Jesus who has to endure. So, so here it is. We've got to run the race. It's going to be hard work. So how do we do that? Second point, looking to Jesus. Because the Hebrew Christians, they're not primarily to look back to those greats of the Old Testament. They've got a better example. It comes in, in verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. See, Jesus is the one who, who realized faith fully from start to finish. It's not just he's the source of faith. He is its pioneer. He's the captain of faith who has run the race before us. He's fulfilled all of God's purposes for those who have faith, who believe in him. You see, the great thing we've seen in Hebrews again and again is our relationship with God doesn't depend on 
our trust of him. No, from beginning to end, it depends on what Jesus has done, his relationship with his Father in heaven. So fix your eyes on Jesus. He's done it all for you. Why? Well, look at the second half of verse 2 again. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus looked forward as he went to the cross. And he knew that once he had died, he would be raised and then exalted to heaven. And he'd sit down at his father's right hand. And he'd know that he'd done everything necessary to save us. The joy of bringing us into his people. It's a finished, completed work. And because of that joy of sitting down, you you know, don't you that feeling when you've Maybe you've done the garden for half an hour. That's about all the gardening I have in me. I can do one mow lawn. That's, that's manly. It has to be a petrol mower, but that's another story. Manly. And then I sit down. The job's finished with a cup of tea. You think, oh, yes. Or, or think, Jesus, the joy of sitting down, having labored in agony in the work of salvation, the joy of knowing he'd saved us. And because of that, he endured the cross, the shame of the cross, the the despised shame of the cross. For a Jew, the cross meant you were cursed by God. For a Gentile, for a Roman, the cross was so disgraceful that the advice was you shouldn't even look upon it. And Jesus went through that shame and agony for us. Consider him, says the writer in verse 3. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Literally, so you will not become sick of soul. Think of Jesus. And it's not just what he went through for us. It's the fact that as the one who lived life in obedience to God, he suffered for it. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 15 and verse 18? If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. The one who lived a perfect life of love was hated for it. And Jesus walked, therefore, the road of suffering to glory. That was his life. Therefore, if we say we follow Jesus, it's not like he gives us the bypass of comfort. You know, he went suffering glory, and we go, wait a second, I've got the bypass of the easy life around the corner here. I'm going to follow you, Jesus, but I've got Satnav set to a different route. No, we follow Jesus. When we say, I want to follow Jesus, we're talking about the road of suffering to glory. And do you remember these Hebrew Christians? They'd started on that road. They'd rejoiced as they had their property confiscated. But now it's just taking their toll on them. It's hard work and they're losing heart. They're letting their grip on the Lord Jesus Christ loosen. And they're in danger of drifting off. From following him and, and into the currents of conformity. They're paying lip service to Jesus maybe, but, but they're just not living for him. And the writer says, look, you haven't even had it that bad. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, chapter 11 ended with a, a list of people who followed God, and what did they get? Stoned for it. That's not the stoning that appears to be most gardeners' joy. Smoking weeds they haven't dug up. But stoning with rocks that hurts a lot. 
They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They were destitute, persecuted, and ill-treated. You, you haven't experienced that, Hebrew Christians. I, I don't think we have yet. I've not visited anyone in hospital yet who's had a brick thrown at them for Jesus. I, I was reflecting this week, what's the way that, that the devil drags us away from, from following Christ? And I think it is quite simply this. It's the opposite of these verses. He takes us away from fixing our eyes on Jesus. He stops us considering him. I guess there are two ways we do that. One is he he takes us away from other Christians. We're too busy to meet with them. We've got other things to do. And we always think we're going to open up the Bible on our own, but we never quite manage it in the same way. And so we don't consider Jesus. But the other is, of course, once we stop thinking about Jesus, who do we think about primarily? Ourselves. Our head gets inserted into our navel. And once we're thinking about ourselves, that's brilliant for the devil. Because basically, we either then go to self-righteousness or self-pity. But they're actually two sides of the same coin. It's just self-righteousness is a load more fun than self-pity. They're both a world where I deserve stuff. And if we're in self-righteousness or self-pity, what happens is then when stuff goes wrong in life, we get angry with God. I don't deserve this. Or we get despondent. Oh, well, it's because I'm such a dreadful sinner. There's no hope for me. It's it's never going to get better. The devil loves that. But, But do you know what? The writer of the Hebrews says is consider Jesus. And when you consider Jesus, the first thing you see is the one who lived a perfect life suffered. So so I can't complain if in this world of sin and suffering I struggle and experience difficult things. But because the one who lived a perfect life suffered, I have a sure and certain hope. Suffering is temporary. One day I will be with him in a world without those things. And so fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider him, says the writer. And even more wonderfully, that suffering you're going through at the moment... It's not without purpose. Run the race, looking to Jesus. Here's the last thing, trained by God. Because look at verse 5 with me. This is probably the most shocking thing, this last point. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Now, I think in our culture, primarily we see discipline now as a negative word. It is actually the same word group as we get disciple from. A disciple is just someone undergoing discipline. And it's primarily a word, therefore, that's positive. It's about training. And so discipline in the Christian life, it's not the anger of divine God, you know, that you've done something wrong. The sort of Bruce Almighty version of God where you do something bad and then God visits judgment upon you there and then. No, that's not it at all. It's the training of God through the circumstances of life, often the hard circumstances of life. 
Uh, this quote here in Hebrews is from the book of Proverbs. It's, it's the Bible's book on wisdom of how to live life in a very practical, nitty-gritty way in relationship with the God who loves you. And what the writer is saying is it's through those tough, nitty-gritty things that God is training you and shaping you. Why is he doing it? Because he loves you. You see, we think when life gets tough, it's a sign that God doesn't love me anymore. But the the Bible says, no, when life gets tough, it's a sign that God does love you because he wants to make you more like Jesus. And so the writer says in verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? See, there's the command. We're to endure. We're to persevere. But, But hardship is not without purpose. It's discipline. Probably one of the, 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 the most well-known verses in, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in Romans eight twenty-eight, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. In everything, God is working for your good to train you to be more like Jesus. And so he goes on in verse 8, If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, true, not true sons and daughters at all. See, when you you love someone, you want want the best for them, don't you? That's what we want, say, for for our children. It's why we discipline our kids. Now, when we're kids, we think the best thing our parents can give us is what we want. But actually, that's not the case. The best thing is what someone wiser and more loving, who's lived a bit more of life, knows is the best thing for us. And there is no one wiser and more loving who's lived more of life than the Lord God who made life itself. And he's a father who therefore knows what is best for us. Lord, the writer says in verse 9, Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? You see, if we've had good human fathers, and I know, I know many people have suffered bad experience at the hand of, of fathers who haven't been good to us, but, but if we have, with time, we do come to appreciate their discipline. I mean, I never particularly was thankful for my dad who told me to polish my shoes. This is seriously old school. And we used to have shoes and you, you put polish, polish on them. Anyway, it's a novel concept. We used to have them. And... Um, Okay, he polished my shoes, I had to keep my room tidy, I had to do stuff, I had to look after my stuff, my toys. But actually, now I can see how that's, that's, that's helped me in life. It, it means life's a bit easier now. But, but how much more then should we rejoice that we have a perfect heavenly Father, the Father of all spirits, who disciplines us in love as he sees best? See, discipline is education by correction. Now, as earthly fathers, we often get that wrong, don't we? I mean, we, our, our discipline is tainted by our sin. And it's not just that it's tainted by our sin. Sometimes our discipline is, is just the plain result of sin. I, I mean, I've, I've done this. I might be the only person here who's done it, but I'll hazard a guess some other dads have done it. You've had a rubbish day at work. It's been really tough. You get home, and it's actually nothing to do with what the kid does. It's all to do with the day you've had. And you're knackered, and you're hacked off. And finally, there's someone 
who you can speak your mind to, because you can't say it to the boss because you lose your job. And so you just snap, and the kid gets it. And we've all done that. I hope, by the way, if you're, if you're a dad here, your kids have heard you say this. I'm very, very sorry. That was my fault. That's, that is the utter key to parenting. Your kids see that you are someone who gets things wrong and requires God's grace and can say sorry to them. If you never said sorry to your kids, that's a real problem. Our, our, our discipline isn't perfect. But God's discipline is perfect. The writer says in verse 10, They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. He's brought us into his family, and now he's, he's making us in the family likeness. He's shaping us to be holy. He's making us more like Jesus. But that's not easy. No discipline, verse 11, seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. One of my favorite Christian books is Christian Leaders of the 18th Century. Uh, It talks about some some greats like Wesley and and Whitfield. There's a guy called uh, John Fletcher in there. He's a a vicar of a place called Maidley. Let let me read you what, what he said on this subject. I learn by slow experience that there is no good thing in me. This, I find, cannot be learned of men nor by man. It is a lesson that grace alone teaches effectually in the furnace of affliction. Dare I say it? Some things can't be learned from sermons. Suffering is the only way that will take them in. And do you ever remember being glad as a kid when you were disciplined? When, when you were sent to your room? overjoyed when you'd had your bottom smacked because it, it taught you not to do it again? I mean, if, if your kid is smiling at you from the naughty step, it is not that it is rejoicing in your discipline. It is that it is spiting you because your efforts are so pathetic. <laughs> and our problem as children of God is, is we think that our instant happiness rather than our long-term holiness is the best thing for us. I read recently that that uh, they did a survey amongst marriage counselors, Christian marriage counselors in the States. They, they asked uh, a shed of them, what do you think is the, the biggest issue causing the breakdown of marriage in the States? And they said, it's this, it's that people believe that God just wants me to be happy rather than that he wants me to endure and to be holy. And yet, what God is doing, he's working something far better than for our, our contentment, our happiness in the moment. He is bringing a harvest of righteousness and peace. That's not just the righteousness of living a right life. That's the righteousness of trusting in Christ and standing before God perfectly innocent at peace with him because our suffering has driven us back to Jesus. That, that was Joe's testimony this morning, wasn't it? that where she is has driven her back to God to know he is close and he's for her and he loves her. And so she enjoys right relationship with him and peace with God, not just now tasted in a slightly imperfect way, but fully enjoyed in a perfect way in a glorious new creation. But, but by the way, if, if you're struggling in life, 
you know, that, that's what God is doing for you. He's bringing you closer to him. Now, let me give you a, let me give you a warning. Please, please, please don't go away and think, right, what I have to do is I'm having a really rough time. I need to work out what lesson God is teaching me. That's not what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. He's not saying, in the moment, try and work out what the lesson is. No, then what you need to do is cling to Jesus. In time, you'll see what God is teaching you, but, but don't try and second-guess him. Nor is it that we should be happy in the midst of hardship and suffering. You know, the, sort of, the cheesy smile Christian. The dog's died, I lost my job, my wife's left me, but Jesus loves me. And you want to punch them in the face. Okay, it's not that we should be happy in our discipline. Actually, that's hardship. It's miserable. It's difficult. Remember, we've got a God who is not happy that we suffer and live in a world of sin. He is so unhappy with that that in love he sent his one and only son to die and deal with it once and for all. He is the God who in Christ knows what it is to walk through suffering in obedience to death on a cross. You know, our hearts should ache in suffering. I was uh, chatting to a mate uh, not too long ago who'd had one of those totally rubbish days. Um, Basically, he'd been totally stitched up by his boss at work, blamed for something he didn't do, and worse than that, everyone at work knew that the boss had done it, but no one had the courage to stand up to the boss and tell him. And, And I don't know about you, but that sort of injustice, it does my head in. And, and we were saying how we wanted to take the boss around the back of the shed and give them a bit of disciplined Welsh rugby player style. Once I realized that was bad pastoral advice, <laughs> we looked at the Bible. And we saw, of course, Jesus. Jesus suffered unjustly. You know, we were fuming together, but we remembered that Jesus, he went to a trial where he was accused falsely and spat upon and whipped, and eventually crucified. Jesus bore the suffering I do deserve, so that I can have a perfect future with God that only he deserves. This is not that God's lost control on our lives. He's using all of them to make us more like Jesus, to draw us closer to Jesus, to help us depend on Jesus. And when we do, what do we find? Well, we've seen in Hebrews, we have a sympathetic high priest who's walked our road and felt our pain and is taking us home. That's the Jesus God is drawing us closer to. And so verse 12, Therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. You ever ever hit the wall in the Christian life? You know the wall in the marathon? Apparently it's it's when your legs go and your arms go and you just feel like you can't take another step, comes in close close to the finish, and you've got a decision to make, haven't you? You're either just going to sit down and give up, or you're going to fight on step by step to the end. You see, the Christian life, it's not just for for buff athletes in, in Lycra. It's for weak people, for people who feel feeble, for people who are running in their grandfather's string vest and frankly look ridiculous. For those with muscles that have years of neglect and are limping on their way through life. And what's the job of the church? We've seen this in Hebrews again and again. It's that we encourage one another. 
We help one another. One of the most beautiful things about the marathon, isn't it, is those stories of people helping each other across the line. They hit the wall, and there they are, arm in arm, helping one another. The strong runner who who seems to be cruising to a, a personal best stops and scoops up the hobbling wreck and drags them across the line. Now, that's what we're to do for one another. So, make level paths for your feet so the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Now, verse 13 takes two verses from the Old Testament. A, a, a verse from Proverbs 4 that's an encouragement about keeping walking faithfully with Jesus. And then a verse from Isaiah 35, which is about the blessing that God's King will bring in terms of healing, the way that He will sort us out on the road to life. And the message is this, what we're to do is to help one another because as we help one another, Jesus will keep us going. The lame will not be disabled, but rather healed. Can I say to you, if you're at the moment stumbling through the wall of the Christian life, please tell someone. And if they don't help you, please tell me. Because our job here for one another is to get us all, all of us, each one of you, even if this is your first Sunday at CEC, our job is to get you across the finishing line to enjoy forever with Jesus in rest. However great your injuries, however deep the wounds you're experiencing, our job is to help you run the race with your eyes fixed on Jesus, being trained by God day by day. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you're using everything in our lives to conform us to the likeness of your Son. So please, in the race that is the Christian life, in the marathon, in the sweat and the tears and the struggle, fix our eyes on him. Help us to consider him. Help us to rejoice in him. And help us to help each other in that. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen.